Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Palo Alto Networks and it's Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. Watch the new Palo Alto Networks virtual event on demand to hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Watch on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash SASE dash signature dash moment. Today on Heavy Networking, we're talking IPv6. IPv6 adoption continues to ramp up globally. For instance, Google says that the percentage of users accessing Google services via v6 is now at 41% worldwide. Public cloud providers such as AWS and Azure are rolling out v6 support across their services. And what's more, IPv6 support is now mandated on all new US federal systems, and at least 80% of IP-enabled assets on federal networks have to be IPv6 only by 2025. So IPv6 is here and could be coming to a network near you. So on today's show, we're going to get into IPv6 essentials that network engineers should understand, things like how to incorporate IPv6 support in upcoming projects, how v6 affects things like NAT and subnetting and more. Our guests are Ed Horley and Scott Hogue from Hexabuild. That's an IPv6 consultancy and training firm. Ed and Scott are also co-hosts along with Tom Coffeen of the IPv6 Buzz podcast on the Packet Pushers Network. If V6 is on your radar, there's more than 100 episodes of IPv6 deep dives for your edification and listening enjoyment. Uh, Ed and Scott, welcome to Heavy Networking. So besides the change from 32 bits to 128 bits, what's the big deal with V6? Well, I mean, it's IPv6. I mean, it's a bigger number. <laughs> we went from it's V4 two to more. V6. It's, it's just two, two more. more. It's that much more important. <laughs> I guess I guess the quick thing for, for listeners, if they're not familiar with V6, is number one, it's just not backwards compatible with V4. <laughs> guess state the obvious first, right? So you're not gonna you're not gonna get that. But um, you know, I think probably the biggest thing is just thinking differently around it. It's just a totally different protocol that uh, you just need to do a little bit of learning around in order to really understand what's What's going on but it's just moving packets from one location to the other it's not that different than v4 or you know ipx xpx or <laughs> anything else right for getting payload from one one destination to another uh it's still the same in terms of in terms of that aspect um i guess the other part is really how quickly the industry is moving now i know it's been a long sit and wait sit and wait sit and wait and then suddenly everything is happening at least it feels like to everyone suddenly everything is happening versus those of us that have been slogging through this from <laughs> A long time. I don't know. I mean, um, I guess the biggest thing is it really allows the internet to continue growing and expanding at the rate that um, that it uh, that it's been doing since uh, I guess what the late '80s, early '90s, right? And uh, and and will accelerate that growth even more. I don't know, Scott. What do you what do you think? What's the biggest What's the biggest change? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, both both of the protocols share a lot in common. You know, they're both. Datagram, connectionless, oriented, routed protocols. You know, they're functionally much the same, but as Ed said, you know, V6 is a, a completely separate protocol. It has a different header structure, uh, different addressing. Um, there's no backward compatibility, uh, but they can both coexist on the same network. And you see the internet runs IPv4 and IPv6. There's a there's an IPv6 internet out there. And you know, I guess 
The larger addressing space uh, allows for no need for network address translation, which is a big shift. Also, you know, the larger addressing space gives us the ability to, you know, we have an abundance of addressing. And so we have such an abundance that there is no scarcity. And so that's something difficult for, for people to wrap their head around initially. And then we often make a trade-off uh, with IPv6 of efficiency for ease of use, ease of management, ease of administration, just ease of operations. And that's hard for people to think about because we're so used to thinking of IPv4 as a as a scarce, very limited commodity. And you think to yourself, I'm deploying a new network. Can I, do I have to use a slash 28 or can I splurge and use a slash 27? Like what, what, you know, how many hosts are going to be on this network? And IPv6, once you learn about it, you realize, wow, this is a breath of fresh air. It's so much simpler. Uh, that scarcity thing that you said, Scott, um, I have heard network engineers uh, who used to that V4 mindset of scarcity still applying that to V6 because they can't help themselves. And it's like, no, no, if I go crazy with my V6 address space, I'm going to regret it in the future. But mm -hmm. uh, but but I've heard you guys talk about this, and that's it really would be hard to exhaust your V6 address space, isn't it? Yeah, because imagine your organization was allocated a slash 32 prefix from your regional internet registry. And most organizations could qualify for that large of a of a prefix, decent sized enterprises, certainly. Uh, and you used a slash 64 as the de facto prefix length for every network. That gives you 4.3 billion slash 64s out of a slash 32. You don't have, you know, you do show IP route summary <laughs> on your core <laughs> router and you don't have that many routes. So, well, I, I think one of the things is, is thinking about separating your, your thought process. You don't worry about hosts anymore, right? Because to the 64th and just the host space, like you're never going to run out of addresses, like pure addresses for a given subnet of 64. And so you're really just dealing with networks. How many networks do you want to operate? And even, and Scott, Scott even makes some arguments around like even thinking network space is probably not appropriate in terms of in terms of how that plays out. But the reality is, is for most of us, the easy leap is how many networks do I need to operate and really thinking in that fashion and just don't worry about how many hosts are in because using a you know two addresses out of that slash 64 versus using 10 million, it's a rounding error difference between the two of those that you, <laughs> you're not even using a fraction of the total overall addresses that are available in there. So using 10 million addresses looks exactly the same as using two addresses, which is just a really hard thing to wrap your head around. So like, yeah, using a 64 for a point to point, like, oh my goodness, I'm wasting, you know, these two addresses out of this massive address space. If you use 10 million addresses out of it, you'll be just as wasteful. <laughs> so yeah. Don't worry about it. Is that yeah. part of the issue then? It's a rethinking from a scarcity mindset to a an abundance mindset and sort of being overwhelmed by all of that space and yeah. then wondering, am I going to screw it up if I yeah, know, have to? And, and it's you also mentioned, Ed, it's moving from a host mindset to a network mindset. Yes. I, th I think it's, it's, imagine this. Imagine that we hit the button and magically we all have an infinite amount of clean energy available to us. How does our world change in terms of thinking? Can you imagine like how different everything is? Like well, companies aren't doing what they're doing. We don't have to worry about the pollution side. Like, I don't have to follow was... my kids around the house turning off computers and lights and stuff when they're not using yeah, them. Yeah, but, but just imagine how hard it would be to break everyone in the world's mindset 
right. about how they deal with that versus where we're at today. And that's literally the sort of jump that you're making from V4 to V6. I mean, it's not a great analogy, but, but it sort of works, right? In terms of like just the thought process. I think it's really hard for people to overcome that. Like we, we see this consistently in the work that we're doing. It's so just then, very, very hard. Yeah. So how do I make the case in my organization to kind of like, okay, it's time. We got to do this. Let's get our arms around IPv6. Are there compelling reasons that I can bring to either other technical folks or the business side of the house to say, yes, we're going to start making this push? I think so. I think, I, so the way, um, I guess... Scott, Tom, and I are pretty pragmatic around the V6 side. We think V6 should be part of your overall planning around all the other initiatives that you have. So if you got, you know, you're building net new, you know, Ethernet fabrics, V6 should be part of the discussion about what you're doing there. But you don't have to do V6 as an entirely separate thing, right? Mm -hmm. Do it as part of your zero trust. Do it as part of your SD-WAN. Do it as part of your firewall refresh. Do it as part of your LAN and campus refresh. And you just use this as part of the criteria to make sure that you have a net new architecture that you're happy with that you can that you can support, and uh, and then you don't have to you know as they say eat the elephant right uh, in terms of trying to just do v6 everywhere all at once uh, and you know magically snap your fingers and, it, and it's going to work everywhere which is really you know probably much more difficult to do than trying to do it in a in a more sort of I guess measured way <laughs> I guess is a polite way to say it. Um, yeah, that's that's typically how we sort of think about adoption and the fundamentals for adoption, and 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 those are those things are are much easier to do. And starting off with a proof of concept lab to get all that going is really going to allow you to sort of move things forward at a more measured pace and, and and be able to tackle it all. And getting over the mindset portion of it, you just need to get hands on with it to sort of get yourself out of that. That's that's the only way that I've really found that is really workable for most folks is that they're like, Oh, I get it. I'm starting to lay out my address space. I see what you guys are talking about. Let's build a lab. Okay. I get what I, I, I get why the point to point stuff isn't really a big concern. I understand what's going on with, you know, link local and my loopback addressing and everything else. You get hands on time. That's the, that's the way you get comfortable. Yeah. You kind of hit on like, what's the business case? How do I sell this to management or why would we even try to because there's an OPEX cost to deploying it. You may not have to buy any equipment, but you have time. And that, you know, takes time away from other initiatives. So what is the benefit for the trade-off of time? Well, you know, you want to, you know, maintain business continuity. You need to be able to communicate with customers, partners, suppliers, employees, vendors, anyone else out there on the internet that may already be using it. Uh, unbeknownst to them, maybe they don't know. They might be using it at their homes, on on the road, in a coffee shop, you know, on their mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And you want to maintain that business continuity, and you want to be able to communicate with them. You also want to give those who may already be using V six and V four the opportunity to reach you over whichever protocol may be pa- faster for their perspective. If you think to yourself, I, I've got plenty of V four address. I don't need to use IPv6. You don't realize that other people don't have that abundance and they may be forced to start to use it. And from their perspective, if you were the bigger person and implemented IPv6, it could be faster from their perspective. And so we see evidence on the internet and there are statistics that show on average, IPv6 is faster than IPv4. 
And so that's really the business case. And the reason V6 is faster on average is because, you know, mobile devices, you know, in order for a mobile device that might be a V6 only device to reach you, because you're still sticking with IPv4, in order to reach you, they have to go through a DNS 6.4, a NAT 6.4, or maybe a 4.6.4 XLAT. So it's <laughs> not that there's something inherent to IPv6 that makes it you know, more efficient. It's the fact that if I'm still on IPv4, I'm introducing inefficiencies in reaching me. Yeah. In order for those other people to reach you over V4, they have to go through NATs. And that traffic may be backhauled through NATs. And there may be multiple NATs. If you implemented IPv6, there would be no NATs between that customer, subscriber, partner, employee, whoever, and it would improve their end user experience reaching you. Okay. That's the business so, case. <laughs> yeah, but you've also just raised several things that I want to try to see mm -hmm. if we can unpack. Okay. You know, okay. first is um, if I'm not going to eat the elephant, if I'm going to roll IPv6 into whatever project I'm doing, one that makes me think, okay, what's the support for IPv6 like among host OSs, uh, my switches and routers, my firewalls, whatever else. And then two, it also sounds like that I'm going to be operating in, in a dual stack environment, which seems like it could add some operational complexity to my life, which I may not want. Yeah, definitely. All, you know, routers, switches, wireless equipment support IPv6 today. That's not mm -hmm. an issue. Okay. All host operating systems support IPv6. And many applications, as soon as they get an IPv6 address added to the underlying host NIC, they'll just immediately start to work with IPv6. So it really is that process of turning it on intentionally on those devices. Uh, and if you do that, then you've enabled IPv6. And also, you don't have to boil the ocean. You could focus on that web tier where your customers out there on the internet, on the IPv6 internet, may be coming to you. So you focus on that internet edge first, focus on those public-facing applications, make them accessible over v4 and v6. An example would be DNS. Your authoritative name servers are a great place to start with enabling IPv6. They probably sit close to the internet edge anyway. So you're not having to plumb IPv6 deeper into your organization than is absolutely necessary. They sit at your perimeter. And if you put a V6 address on them, they could then accept TCP or UDP port 53 connections over V4 or V6. Other caching DNS resolvers around the internet pay attention to the round trip time when they're talking to NSs. And they cache that speed and they choose whichever one is faster. So from the rest of the world, and all the root name servers use IPv6 already, by the way, that from their perspective, it may be faster to do DNS lookups of your, you know, www.company.com from their perspective. If you can speed up DNS lookups, you've sped up all application traffic uh -huh. simply by v6 enabling DNS. Okay, so that gives me a starting point. And again, also that sort of business case element, why am I doing this? Faster, avoiding that, I think is avoiding that and avoiding technological obsolescence and realizing that even though you may have a plentiful supply of E4, other people don't, they are already transitioning to IPv6. And so it's, inev it's an inevitability. It's an eventuality. You're going to have to do it you might as well start sooner rather than later. 
You guys made it seem like the network equipment and so on is everybody supports IBV6. You kind of made it sound like this is a no brainer. It's all there. Mm -hmm. But historically, mm -hmm. it's not been a no brainer because support has been kind of there and kind of not not feature parity between v4 and v6 maybe some domains are supported but others aren't all depending on what interface and what you're going after in that device is are we saying that that's gotten a lot better here in 2023 mm -hmm. i think I, yeah. I i would say as a general rule of thumb yes it's, it has gotten better there are, are there are always exceptions ethan we know this um <laughs> and, and there are certain there are certain there are certain areas that are doing better than <laughs> that much better than others and 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 I think that's one of the reasons that we advocate so heavily that that you need to get a proof of concept lab to sort of figure out what is working, what's going to be a roadblock for you in terms of capabilities, right? And and what's key critical for your organization to support. Um, some of it can be handled with transition technologies. Some of it can be you know like building small sections of of dual stack to get get past those issues. And you don't know that stuff until you're actually testing and building and designing. That's just reality, right? You can, you, I mean, you can obviously do a thought exercise to try and figure it out, but uh, the reality is you have to spend some time doing a, some assessment work to really understand what your environment's like and what's going to have support and what's not. Yeah, those devices that oh, that don't seem to have as much feature parity or functional parity as Ed talks about, or maybe some of the security devices, maybe public cloud infrastructure. You know, that's or other things like that, that's where you may see differences or may lack some features. It does feel like we're past the, the time where you ask a vendor, what's your V6 support? Oh, customers aren't asking us for that. So maybe later. We're not getting that answer as often as we used to. Yeah, I think uh, the U.S. federal government mandate requirement has really changed a lot of vendors' approaches to IPv6 <laughs> overall. When it's when they have a stated goal of of getting to eighty percent IPv6 only by by twenty twenty five, and everyone's scratching their head, going, "Well, I guess if we want to continue to sell to the federal government, which I mean, if you put them on the <laughs> fortune list, they would be fortune number one, right?" Right. <laughs> so, from from a pure ranking standpoint, I mean, they're pretty important for a lot of. Um, you know, software, application, hardware, device, and uh, manufacturers, right? In terms of selling to them as an organization, so there's there's a lot of pressure that's going on right now in terms of getting getting up to speed around v6 and, uh, and certainly addressing that need requirement that many federal organizations are are, are now having um, placed on them, and that's having downstream effects to organizations that have to interact and sell to them. As Scott mentioned, like if you're a vendor or a supplier to the U.S. federal government. And they come to you and say, like, well, you have to talk to us on V6. You now have a V6 problem. <laughs> right? Mm. <laughs> right? Or V6, depending on which way you look at it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see flow downs. To be very clear on that V6 mandate, you guys are saying the federal government is saying IPv6 only by 2025. Only. That means they're not going to be dual stack, will not be listening on V4? So, so that's that's an interesting question. I, th I think at Internet Edge, you're going to see Ethan. They'll continue to support IPv4 from a from a resource perspective to basically make sure that they can talk to everyone because that's the function of government, right? Serve the public, <laughs> so, yeah. So serve the public. So I think what you're seeing is from a from a need standpoint, they're like, we can't continue to to thrive and exist on a legacy protocol that can't expand to support what our needs are as a government. We need to move to V6 and to, and to ensure that we can, you know, grow and expand in the way that we need to, and to support the services we need to. So, they they put that stake in the ground. What we're really talking about when you look at their numbers is really 
the internal side of the organization of federal 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 governments, you know, agencies, departments, et cetera, they need to get to 80% of IPv6 only uh, for the devices that participate in the network. So what does that look like? That can be very different depending on what sort of org you are. All right. I mean, they could just port over handsets, you know, IP handsets and, you know, laptops and probably get the majority of the number requirement there and never touch their data center and use transition technologies for the data center. That's possible, right? Really depends on how you approach it versus maybe you're an organization that's data center heavy, right? All you're doing is analytics work. You don't have a lot of laptops, but you got a lot of smart people doing stuff on HPC or something like that. Then you're going to build a very different network and you're going to have different requirements for the data center to com- convert that over because that's where you're going to get your numbers. So that's sort of the game that's being played right now of everyone trying to figure it out. And uh, there's obviously you know exceptions to the rule, but that that's what's happening internally within U.S. federal side. So it sounds like as we were talking about, you know, where do I start with transitioning to IPv6? And you talked about, you know, start with DNS maybe or at the outside edge and kind of work your way in. This does, I think, imply that there will be some period of dual stack support. What kind of operational management troubleshooting issues should then folks be aware of as they live in this dual stack environment? Yeah, you have kind of the additive of these two OPEX environments. You have a V4 environment that is that you'll continue to maintain. And over time, you know, you'll do more and more readdressing. <laughs> you may have to buy addresses off the address transfer market, you know, because you're going to continue to use IPv4 for the foreseeable future. And it's it's going to get harder and harder. You know, the, the water in the pot's going to get warmer and warmer and warmer over time, you know, as you spend more time readdressing and doing more and more gnats, gnats on top of gnats. Are you are you referring to that frog metaphor with the yes the, the frog metaphor in the pot that <laughs> frog doesn't realize that the water is getting hotter and hotter and hotter yes. until it's boiled it's too late yeah um, but then with IPv6 you have this opex cost of implementation of training your people learning and deploying it proof of concept lab rolling it out it's like a greenfield deployment roll out TCP/IP on your entire IT infrastructure that has a significant opex cost. And then to operate IPv6 for the long term, maybe it's simpler because the addressing model is simpler. When you deploy IPv6, you shouldn't ever have to readdress. And that's kind of a nice thought. I lay it down once, never have to touch it again. And so over time, over the long term, maybe the OPEX cost drops, but there's this, you're adding those two amounts together and every think about it. Yeah, every time you're in a dual stack environment, every time I'm going to add a new server to a data center, I got to go to my IPAM system. I got to give it a V4 address and a V6 address. I got to configure a DNS A record and a quad A record. I got to configure a V4 pointer record and a V6 pointer record. Okay, now I go to the server and I spin it up. I configure a V4 address, V4 default gateway, subnet mask, DNS, V6 address slash 64 prefix, next hop, gateway, DNS. Okay, now can I ping it over V4? Can I ping it over V6? Now I got to add a firewall object for V4, a firewall object for V6. Now I need to build a rule. Or I group the objects and then I build a rule. But now I need to test it. And now I turn up the web service. Now I need to do a vulnerability scan over V4 and V6 before I make it a production service. You can see there's a lot of doing things twice. Right. But again, you only have to do that double work once, right? Because once you're IPv6, you don't have to then readdress later on. 
Yeah, I mean, you yeah. should use software to automate all this. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, I, well, I think the other point is, is one of the things that's structurally different is that we're trusting the host operating system to do a bunch of behavior correctly too, right? Because you've got two addresses and now you've got this sort of source destination address selection process that goes on in the host. And you're just hoping that the host does all the right things, which for the most part it does. <laughs> But you need to be aware of it, right? Right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a given that it's all going to behave exactly correctly. So there's a little bit more work in terms of troubleshooting, of understanding happy eyeballs, understanding you know RFC sixty seven twenty four, and and how all that stuff actually impacts what's going on inside your network. Because suddenly the hosts are making a lot more decisions than the classic IPv four network. Uh, IPv four network. I think the network team has a lot more decision making. Because basically the host really only has one decision to make, which is forward my traffic to the default gateway and I'm good to go because I only have one address. That's all I can source from, right? There's a lot more that goes on with V6 that makes it a little bit, well, especially with the dual stack configuration makes it a little bit more complex. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches, and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com, that's PRTG.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. Uh, very briefly, can you explain what happy eyeballs is? There's a lot of interesting terminology in the V6 world, which I'm picking up from listening to the podcast that you guys do. But um, yeah, if you have a brief primer on happy eyeballs. A uh, brief primer on happy eyeballs. We, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Scott. Yeah. Um, the RFC is originally, you know, uh, 6555. Uh, there's a second version of happy eyeballs. But basically, years ago, when a computer would do a, a get at or info, you know, API call to the underlying stack to do a DNS query, the returns back a, a linked list data structure that has the IPv6 addresses sorted on the top and the v4 addresses sorted on the bottom. And that may sound great because then your computer creates a TCP SYN packet to each of those addresses and attempts connections to those addresses in sequential order. And if, but if your v6 connectivity is faulty, it could take a long time to fall back to using IPv4. And if you had faulty V6 or IPv6 brokenness, as we call it, that's another <laughs> V6 uh, term we use in vernacular, that it, we don't want to take a long time to fall back to V4 if V6 is faulty. We really want to make host operating systems more aggressive. And so the, the get out or info you know, call to the TCP IP stack 
should return a list, but then applications should be made to basically race V4 and V6 against each other. If if one fails or the other fails, then use the one that works uh, and use whichever protocol may be faster. If they're both equally performant, then leave the V6 connection up and do a reset on the V4 connection and use V6 because it seems pretty good and it works and it completed just as fast. And so really, this improves end user experience. It improves the end user experience for the eyeballs on the internet, the end users, and it makes them happy. That's the idea is we race V4 against and against V6, use whichever one is faster. So it gives you this reliability function and this high availability. You have now two protocols to choose from and you choose whichever one is best. It's left Twix or right Twix. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think to, to Scott's point is uh, you're trying to get the best of both worlds. You're also trying to overcome what was fundamentally a big structural problem when V6 first came out, when we did not have happy eyeballs, which was how long the delay was to fail from one to the other. Mm-hmm. That was a big structural issue. So that's what was being addressed. And then happy eyeballs has gone through some iterations. So at the current, what is it? 8305, Scott, I think is the, the current, the current uh, RFC. And um, that really refines how quickly things um, uh, fail and detect and the measurements that they're taking in order to do that. So uh, you're going to, and this is the thing that's a little strange is the way the RFC is written. Not everyone does happy eyeballs the same way, just to make your life that much more joyful. Of course. <laughs> it wouldn't be an RFC if people didn't do it six different ways. <laughs> or that the RFC didn't allow you to do it six different ways. <laughs> so just be aware of that there are different ways to do it. For instance, Windows handles uh, you know conformance for, for happy eyeballs totally different. It uses network connectivity status indicator to basically do that function, which is this sort of little thing that you get as a pop up that detects whether you're behind like a you know a proxy you know like a wireless you know paywall or something like that and says like, Hey, you're connected to the internet, but you still, you got to pay for service or whatever. And pops up mm-hmm. the browser and says like, Hey, mm-hmm. log in. Uh, it uses that same detection mechanism to determine whether V4 or V6 is working and then just sort of sticks to one or the other. So if it says V6 is working, it just sticks to V6. So it's a little different versus like Mac OS does like a crazy amount of performance measurements all the time to determine whether she used V4 or V6. Yeah, it, has, it uses either WebKit or this NSURL function. Yep. And one more question on happy eyeballs. Do I, as a network administrator, this isn't, I presume this isn't something I need to make sure is installed on my host. My hosts, if they're up to date, should be using some form of this RFC. Yeah, you uh, get zero choice in this, man. Like you're a network okay. guy, you get zero <laughs> choice in doing any. This is on the host operating system. You have, mm-hmm. you, you're completely, this, this is the realm of like, certain things moving from the network engineer down to the host operating system and you don't get a choice about this is one of them got it yeah. so it could be implemented in the browser automatically like with chrome or firefox or it could be implemented in the host os like windows with network connectivity status indicator or within mac os or within ios it, yep. it's happening beneath <laughs> there's nothing you can do <laughs> <laughs> You've Your lost control. Will be happy. And, you, and, the, and the end users don't even know what protocol they're using, nor should they care. All this is happening behind the scenes, and it's created in such a way to give them the best end user experience. Right. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much it does. But I, if, if you want to plug in because you're a network geek and you're listening to heavy networking, go get, go get IPv foo as a plugin for Chrome and Firefox. And I think it even works with Edge. So 
it will display what you're currently seeing uh, as what addresses you're connected to for the URLs that you're that you're utilizing. So it's a great little utility tool just to sort of understand at least what your browser is doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't guarantee what your OS is doing, but it'll tell you what your browser is doing. Yeah, you could always go and and do the inspect view within yes. your browser's page and see on the network tab whether you're making v4 or v6 connections or use your friendly neighborhood wireshark protocol analyzer <laughs> and that'll tell you for sure <laughs> we were talking earlier about how v4 engineers move to v6 and the address scarcity versus address abundance it kind of makes their heads explode um, we got this kind of the same thing with nat everyone that's very used to using private ip address space rfc 1918 inside a firewall using NAT and NAT overloads uh, to go outside the firewall, uh, feel comfortable with that paradigm and are used to it because, and then the part of the argument is it's a security thing. I'm more secure if I do that. But with V6, if we're talking V6 to V6 anyway, there should be no NAT. Um, so what's, what's really going on there? And then how do you address the fact that, that in fact, there are NAT 6.6 schemes out there if I wanted to use them? Yeah, there's an RFC called Local Network Protection for IPv6, RFC 4864. And it really talks about all the perceived security benefits of NAT for IPv4 and then describes all of the reasons why you don't need that for IPv6. Well, you don't need overload, for one, because you've got an abundance of v6 addresses. So you don't need the NAT to provide you extra addressing. You'll use global addresses externally and internally but it does give you this feeling that oh, i'm i'm leaking out information <laughs> but uh now you still use stateful firewalls with ipv6 so even if you allow an outbound connection that is sourced from a global address from inside of your network and it doesn't get the nat treatment it's still handled statefully so no one out on the internet that might have obtained your address could create a reverse connection unsolicited inbound and so oftentimes, yeah, security people, they they conflate or they tie together the NAT function with the stateful packet inspection function, and they can really be separated. And so it gives you this idea of, well, I'm allowing my addresses out. Well, most enterprises use some type of outbound web proxy. So you're doing some type of proxying for most of your end users in the outbound direction anyway. And so you aren't going to reveal their addresses. Also. Your addresses and the interface identifier that is used by hosts is seemingly randomized. It would be randomized when doing privacy and temporary addressing. And when you use Slack, stateless address auto configuration, or it be, would be randomized by a DHCPv6 scope. And so it's essentially a random number and it could change. And so if someone knew your address, your interface identifier and the network you came from, that might change. And so that would prevent them from making a return connection to you. But definitely there are products that say NAT66 on their data sheets, and there is no RFC uh, called NAT66. <laughs> uh, I yeah. guess another point to make there would be if you're using slash 64 network address blocks, scanning that, if you happen to know what the block is, scanning that becomes prohibitively expensive for an attacker to do. If the attacker is remote... Yes. If the attacker is on link, it's trivial to find other nodes on your sure. local link. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remote scanning, though, uh, there's been a lot of papers written in the last year, and remote scanning is possible. And there are tools now 
uh, it, you can do massive amounts of remote scanning, but that would not be uh, possible if you were using a good quality stateful firewall. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Palo Alto Networks. 2023 is a year when companies are going to need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has a new virtual event on its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch this event on demand and see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Hear how the latest innovations in Sassy can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma Sassy. Watch this event on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, I, th I think the other discussion, I mean, Ethan, to your point around that, just like the difference of, of thought process of V4 to V6, right? We, we glue typically NAT locations with where we do stateful inspection as a general rule of thumb. I think we can pretty much sort of say mm -hmm. that's a pretty common thing to do. It, it goes to the same location as a firewall. It feels like it has that same functional component of like NAT gives me a, a layer of security uh, that, that comes from obfuscating right my mm -hmm. my address space and things like that and there's some truth to that i mean i don't i don't have an issue with with that thought process with with v4 at all with v6 you don't really need to use nat in the same in the same functional way you can do something like you know there is a, an, an experimental rfc for you know network prefix translation so if it's super important to be able to hide behind things just from a translation basis but the downside with something like network prefix translation is your lower 64 is staying the same only your upper portion of the refix, mm -hmm. uh, the network portion is really changing as you're, as you're flipping bits back and forth. Um, so does that help you in terms of this, the same sort of security thing that you were trying to address with the V4 side of what you got with NAT? Probably not. Oh, I'm already a believer. I've, <laughs> I've been wanting to get rid of NAT and pad at the firewall <laughs> edge for a long time. Um, because yeah. I've never felt the security by obscurity thing was, yes, it's a point, but it was never strong enough of a point, assuming uh, web proxies and a firewall in the middle of that estate for yep. doing the improper inspections, that it was worth the obfuscation, which introduces a bunch of other challenges related to log correlations and uh, you know, other yeah. issues where, gosh, it'd just be nice to kind of know what that V6 address was at the source. <laughs> it makes certain other issues, troubleshooting and so on, easier. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. the biggest advantage is, is you don't put any brittleness in your network. NAP puts brittleness in routed networks, right? That's the big thing. You can't do asymmetrical routing. Like there's just lots of things that don't work that way. And V6 really addresses that because you don't have that brittleness sitting at different edge locations within your network. And as you said, you sort of know who you're talking to and end. So yeah. Pretty useful. You, yeah. With IPv4, we do so much NATs. Do you rely upon reputation filtering to tell you who's the real good guy or or even to know who's in your network? So your security teams probably don't even know because some end hosts or servers are hidden behind NATs. So you so there's no sense of authenticity of the source address anymore with V4. But with IPv6, and if you know there's a lack of NAT, now you have greater situational awareness. You just 
came to that thought there, Ethan, that you have more uh, a feeling that the source address is more authentic because it hasn't been tampered with by a NAT in transit. And now you can apply filters and you've got greater situational awareness of what's really going on in your environment. So what Scott just said is that the IPv4 internet is built on lies. <laughs> attackers can hide behind attackers can easily hide behind multiple layers of NAT safely. And tracebacks and tracebacks are extremely difficult. But with tracebacks with V6, it could be easier. So I, I think you mentioned earlier though that uh among the uh devices with V6 support, firewalls aren't really uh, all there yet? Is is that the case? And what does that mean then when I'm looking at my boundary and, and thinking about ditching that? Yeah, all commercial grade firewalls, even, you know, uh, residential grade <laughs> firewalls or SMB Soho grade firewalls all support IPv6. They okay. all support stateful packet inspection. They support granular filtering of ICMPv6 and extension headers and things like that. Where they may vary in IPv6 support is maybe their ability to do identity-based rules or some advanced application uh, integrity checking, or if they have a built-in IPS, maybe they don't have feature parity in terms of the number of signatures they support for v4 and v6, or it's some of those you know UTM uh, extra <laughs> things they do, uh, you know that they might do for v4 but they haven't quite gotten around to getting all those features v6 capable yet are, are there any issues in terms of uh the actual firewall performance since i'm dealing with you know bigger address in terms of maintaining those state tables with v6 in my firewalls there were more of those issues years ago uh where ipd4 packets were hardware accelerated and v6 was handled in software mm -hmm. but that's largely gone now and but there can still be some functions that you might find even in modern firewalls that use ASICs where some V6 features may still be CPU bound. It It's worth testing. Okay. Or at least worth, uh, worth asking your vendor about. Yeah. You guys recently did a podcast about, uh, you know, having a V6 security plan. Uh, we'll drop a link in the show notes to it. Um, but one of the things that I was, as I was listening to it occurred to me, I just wanted to get a better sense of, you know, if, what are the risks of me sort of ignoring V6 in my enterprise, given that, you know, remote hosts may be coming in using V6, or I may have dual stack enabled hosts on my network. So what if I'm just ignoring V6 because I'm not using it? What are what are the risks to me? Am I Is there something that I'm missing in terms of visibility or whatever uh, on my network if I am just pretending V6 doesn't really exist? Yeah, it's it's already in there. It's already in all the hosts, right. all the servers, host operating systems. It's in your your host operating systems of your remote workers, <laughs> your teleworkers. Uh, an internal user goes, takes their internal laptop out to a coffee shop, conference, another enterprise, you know, a hotel, uh, an airport. And now they are using IPv6 and that IPv6 stack comes by default and it's sitting there and it's dormant when it's inside of your network because your IPv4 intranet still is v4. Mm -hmm. But when that device leaves and it's mobile, then it activates IPv6 if it if it you know has a v6 network that it connects to. And it actively is using IPv6. And so if you and then also 
you are using IPv, your servers are using IPv6 inside of your data centers on a LAN. They all use these link local addresses and they boot up and that is a, a default thing they create. It's the first IPv6 they address they create as part of their boot up process. All modern operating systems do this. And it's a valid unicast address on a LAN segment. And so there could be pivoting east-west on that data center segment using those IPv6 link local addresses and you as a security practitioner would not even see it. Okay, because I'm not looking for V6 traffic or it's... You don't, you, you've, you've ignored IPv6. You don't even know that that is an address that is comes by default. You have no visibility to it. You don't understand how neighbor discovery works. So if someone was able to get access to my network, they could be communicating, exfiltrating on V6, and I wouldn't have any idea uh, that it's happening? Or? Uh, they, would, they would attack a system over IPv4. They get access to that system, yep. but they explore laterally and pivot laterally on that LAN segment. They could okay. use IPv6 to do that. But to get off net, they still need IPv4. But that internal communication among, you know, as they're exploring or setting up, you know, command and control centers inside my organization, they could use V6 to communicate internally. And if I'm not looking for it, I wouldn't see it as a security person or a network person. Yeah, laterally, only on that one right, laterally. VLAN. But then they could activate an IPv6, an IPv4 tunnel and exfiltrate the traffic out. Yeah. And, and the other thing to remember is, I mean, you, you have the same... So... The advantage you get by deploying V6 is that V6 becomes something within your operational domain, right, mm -hmm. or control. And because you're actively managing it, you're looking for it, you're managing it, you, you understand when something uh, abnormal is happening from a configuration standpoint or from a traffic standpoint. If you choose to not have that in your operational boundary, then you're blind to it. And so someone can choose to implement V6 literally on your network. And because of all every host operating system preferring <laughs> V6, it's on by default. Well, if someone else comes in and decides they're the router on your network and they're going to build a V4, a V6 over V4 tunnel and tell everyone that they're your new default gateway, well, congratulations. <laughs> all your traffic's going through this new box and seeing everything that you're doing. And, uh, and they can forward that traffic on your behalf <laughs> too. So, mm -hmm. so it's like, okay, uh, yeah, you can, you can absolutely do things um, uh, to, to be able to exploit networks utilizing V6. So that's one of the things that you have to sort of uh, decide um, uh, how important that is to you and then how much risk you're willing to take. And then what, are you willing to do the, the heavy lift of, uh, of turning off, quote unquote, turning off V6 everywhere, which by the time mm. you're done with that, you might as well just deploy V6. <laughs> Right, <laughs> same amount of effort as like just bring it into the fold as opposed to trying to do that because it guarantees every new system you bring on the network is going to be dual stacked. Right, it's going to be it's it's going to be ready to go. So you have to go through all this effort to turn it off versus just being like, oh, well, it's just going to work correctly the moment I bring it on the network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's much better to be proactive, intentional about IPv6, have a plan, you know, secure it from the beginning. You know, turn it on and control it. You know, then you're in a much more advantageous position than just pushing it under the rug, hoping it goes away. Okay, a couple more questions before we get to the end of the show. First, uh, if I am planning to move to IPv6, should I consider getting uh, IPAM IP address management solution in place to help me manage it? You don't have an IPAM system today <laughs> for your. For your... <laughs> I have Excel. That's <laughs> Excel. Oh, so you so you don't so. 
Yeah, you should really have an IPAM system for the hot mess of an IPv4 environment you have today and all the lovely readdressing projects you have coming your way. So I recommend an IPAM system immediately, <laughs> but not for IPv6. You can you can start your, and now Tom's going <laughs> to be mad. You can <laughs> start your IPv6 deployment with an Excel spreadsheet because it's you know in the conceptual phase maybe of creating your addressing scheme. But yeah, you are going to want an IPAM system for IPv6 to help you with the hexadecimal mathematics. Uh, and laying out your addressing plan and, and understanding what's available, what's held in reserve, and things like that. Yeah. So, okay. So you're just advocating that we should definitely have an IPAM system. Um, but mm -hmm. kind of uh, what goes along with that is is subnetting. And subnetting, those folks that are familiar with it from V4, it's a bit different in uh, in the V6 world. Again, going back to that address scarcity versus address uh, addressing abundance, where you don't have to worry about every single bit in the binary field. In fact, you, if I remember your scheme correctly, you advocate for subnetting on on nibble boundaries. So if I'm right there, maybe explain what a nibble is and what a typical subnetting scheme looks like for V6. Yeah, so <laughs> so we, we use hex in IPv6 just to make your life that much better. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, there's a difference in terms of uh, of sort of like uh, how an address is represented. So, since we're using hex hex for for that portion of it, you you end up counting a little differently. So, I think uh, the easy way to say it is you're just going to end up counting by fours uh, for for figuring out where where nibble boundary is, which is basically a representation of of sort of a single character set within the address. Um, as it's laid out, and I'm not going to try and lay out an address uh, talking through it <laughs> on the podcast. But it's, it's four bits of the address. It's four bits of the address. Yeah. yeah and exactly. so rather than like in V4, we got 32 bits in the address, and we'd worry about a subnet mask potentially going right up to 31 out of 32 could be masks in certain schemes. We're not doing that in V6. We're counting, as you say, we're counting by fours on that nibble boundary. Right. And, and, and I, I want to put a correction, a correction out there in terms of like, don't think it has to be on nibble boundaries. You could technically do it on, on a bit boundary if you wanted to. I don't know why you would want to, to make your life that much more horrendous, but it is possible to do. And it's, it's sort of a fail safe. Uh, if you did mess up your plan for any given reason, you could always move into a bit boundary uh, configuration. Your just life is going to be hell in terms of understanding <laughs> <laughs> where where things start and stop, but that's okay. Uh, it is doable from a pure and, and for most network engineers, when they look at that, they'll be like, "Okay, I understand what's going on." Uh, once they get once they get comfortable with it, um, I don't worry about subnetting as much. And I'll, I'll tell you why, Ethan. It's it's one of these weird things where because you have such an abundance of address space, you can just leave address space unused. And so you can give yourself more breathing room to not have to worry so much about how precise you're being on the subnetting side, which sounds like a really weird conversation, but you got a slash 48, you don't have to go through the complex sort of like, I have to allocate everything within this 48 for the 65,536 slash 64s that I have downstream to figure out for my site topology. Maybe I just group them together and make things a little bit easier. And, and within that grouping, I just use the first available. Or I, we have a rule as a general rule of thumb, just as we don't like to use the all zeros because of confusion about, is that an address? Is that a prefix? Or is that a, you know, a given route statement as I'm looking through things when I'm trying to be an operator? Um, so I don't have a tendency to like to use the all zeros, but 
Um, there's lots of other things you could do. You can start counting from one like normal people. <laughs> right? You can choose to skip the hexadecimal A, B, C, D, E, and F and just go, you know, mm-hmm. zero through nine if you wanted to. There's no reason. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you. You're not using, you know, you know, whatever, 40% of your address space. Like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. We got enough addresses, right? It's, if that makes it easier for you, you can just be like, yeah, we're just going to ignore the, you know, the A through F. And that sounds like good things to say, but, you know. It's, it's about okay. having enough networks for a given site still. Um, I'm thinking yep. about routing and routing topologies and being able to do summarization, which I guess with modern routers that have, you know, all the, all the memory, uh, maybe it's not quite the issue that it was, but still it feels like good routing topology design. You'd assign, I don't know, a slash 48 or a slash 44 or a 40, whatever, to a site. Right. And mm-hmm. then you take a bunch of subnets there and then maybe summarize that route advertisement on the edge mm-hmm. router. Is that still that exactly. commonly done? That's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly how you would do it. And, you know, uh, everyone appreciates good route summarization. <laughs> Regardless of whether you have the address space or not, it's still a useful thing to do. Uh, it's still useful even from a TCAM um, basis mm. for, because if you're dealing with campus networks that may not have as much overall memory available and you are doing dual stack anything that you allocate from a you know a route basis is using more more bits in the dcam right are going to impact both v4 and v6 and so if your v4 route table is exploding because you're having to fragment it down more and more and more and advertise those routes everywhere being more efficient on the v6 side will help you to manage that and not consume as many resources so that's Mm -hmm. a good thing yeah you definitely you with ipv6 you'll use a single hex digit to represent some meaning in your addressing plan. And so all of your prefixes will have a slash and then a number, and that number will be evenly divisible by four. So each four bits will represent a hex digit and that hex digit will have some meaning. And so you don't need to understand even the binary bits that are taking place behind the scenes. You really just look at a hex digit and that has some value. Uh, also, a, a convention, a convention, though, Scott, that not a, again, mm-hmm. following up what you're saying, not that you have to do it that way. But if you're a sane person who's willing mm-hmm. to learn from other people's experience, you would do it this way. Yeah, you should use a slash 40, a slash 44, a slash 48, a slash 52, a slash 56. You shouldn't be using a slash 49, a slash 53. <laughs> A slash 57. You shouldn't be doing things like that. It's just, they look like prime numbers. <laughs> <You> just, like, <laughs> like that is really bad. And also, uh, we also are used to thinking about subnetting is, oh, I allocate one and then I hold one in reserve. And with IPv6, you allocate slash 64s. You don't need to hold the next slash 64 in reserve in case the number of nodes exceeds 18 quintillion. No, <laughs> allocate the next one in line. And, you know, oh, I allocate my sites slash 48s. Well, is any one site ever going to grow larger than 65,000 slash 64s? Unlikely. Let me just allocate them sequentially because a site is never going to grow beyond its bounds of a slash 48. I need to hold those next slash 48 in reserve and then summarize it as to a slash 47 if it grows. No. <laughs> Just, you can do things more sequentially and not have to do things sparse or rate sparse, you know, and make things simpler in that way. You may, and you may choose to use logical abstractions instead. So you may have, um, mm-hmm. you know, like with, with within your site, you may divide things up by security zone or by function or by, you know, 
you know, so you could you could definitely still mm-hmm. subnet underneath, right, and assign prefixes based off of a sixty allocation for printers or for things of that nature. So just depending on what your design topology need requirements are, you can you have the flexibility. You can definitely still subnet underneath the forty eight for the site configuration. You may choose to do organizationally uh, larger allocations if you're a really big shop and maybe you do a 40 or a 44 because you, what you're actually signing is to a campus and not to, and, and so you want to do a 48 per building or you want to do a 48 per the data center that's sitting in the building, right? So you want a separate one for that versus the what the actual building is using for the campus and end users, right? <laughs> so there's different thought process that goes into it. So it's just regular design work that we're all super familiar with and 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 you just get the flexibility of assigning much larger allocations of blocks and not having to worry about the size of the subnet to match how many hosts are in it anymore. Like you don't yeah. think about that. Yeah, for those organizations that still have phones on a desk or a <laughs> or a printer and a printer VLAN. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, that's 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 the thought process around it. There's obviously uh, much more complex, uh, you know, design considerations that you may. You may choose to do this, especially when you start moving into, uh, you know, more modern, you know, if you're doing Ethernet fabric uh, with, you know, VXLAN EVPN, you got tons of, you know, of overlay configurations in terms of, you know, tenant spaces or something like that. Mm. You might have a very different sort of layout for address space, very different sort of route forwarding table configurations. How you want to think about your address space may be very different in that sort of deployment versus maybe just you're like building a service provider network and you just need to get addresses to and you know a cpe device right very different sort of discussions in terms of how you think about stuff but it does sort of bring us back to where we started in that with ipv6 you need to think about abundance rather than scarcity and that will change the way you design mm-hmm. yeah at least influence 100%. your design mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i think that's a pretty much if you're going to take anything away from uh from the discussion that we're having here right now is You've got an abundance of addresses. Stop worrying about that. Just get it out of your head right right away. <laughs> Stop worrying about that. And start focusing on how many networks do I want to operate, but not how many networks do I operate today, but how many networks do I need to operate in 20 or 30 years? So think about potential. Uh, because if you're going to go make an ask for a request for an allocation from someone like Aaron, right? Why are you asking for what you need today? That makes no sense, right? Ask for what you're going to need in 10, 20, 30 years from now. And think very open-minded that way and and say, like, go talk to your management team and be like, are we planning on doing a bunch of acquisitions or are we going to be growing or, you know, what's the thought process? Are we going to enter into three new markets? Like, how's that going to lay out so that you can justify asking for, you know, the size allocation that really makes sense for your org? What's our m and strategy? Do I need to plan for address space mm-hmm. for acquired companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. How am I going to expand into the cloud? How am I using containers and service meshes? What's the future of flying cars look like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, just, that's the thinking you need to have. Yeah. But again, you can be lavish in your planning because there's just so much available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels very gluttonous. <laughs> it does. It does. I <laughs> <laughs> My you have all the, the coiling at the idea of being so wasteful, but uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's intentionally designed to be wasteful. It sounds mm-hmm. like a very strange thing, but we were trying to overcome all the limitations that we were dealing with 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 V four, and I think this is one of the biggest hurdles that everyone you know come coming to the table is like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? There's a smorgasbord of everything in the world. Where do I start eating? Right, and that's that becomes part of the problem. So yeah. it's, a, it's a bit overwhelming. Yeah, you'll make that trade off of. 
efficiency, you'll be very inefficient in your utilization, but you'll trade off and have easier uh, e easier use and easier operations once you lay out a more elegant addressing structure. Actually, it'll be easier to understand. And it'll be consistent. That's the other thing. You don't care if a two-person office or a 40,000-person office, you can give them the exact same address space and sizing. Mm -hmm. You don't care. Mm -hmm. How weird is that? <laughs> Who's working at home? My dog and me. What size? What size allocation do you have? I have a forty-eight. <laughs> yeah, I often hear from engineers who have gone through an IPv6 deployment. Then they have to go back and work on an IPv4 network for a few days, and they're like, "Oh my god, it's terrible! <laughs> I, I wish I could just work in an IPv6 environment the whole time. It's so clean and so nice and neat." <laughs> so my takeaway here then is IPv6 go nuts. Go, go nuts. Have some fun. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Ed and Scott, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking us through all this. Uh, there's a ton more we could have got to, but I think we have to leave it here. Uh, so if folks want to reach out to you, get in touch, or just sort of see what you're up to online, uh, where can they find you? Scott, we'll start with you. Uh, at Scott Hogue. On Twitter. Okay. And you've also written a book, right? Yeah. At least IPv one Yeah. IPv6 Security. I wrote it with Eric Vink. Uh, Cisco. It's a Cisco press book. Okay. We'll have that in the show notes. And Ed, where can folks find you? Yeah, they can reach me on Twitter as at eHorley. Um, that's probably the easiest way. I mean, I blog occasionally, very, very occasionally at howfunky, howfunky.com. <laughs> so you can, you can see stuff there. And then um, I, I wrote a book too. I don't know how, how useful that is, but practical IPv6 for Windows administrators. So if you want to, if you're, if you're a Windows person and you need to try and be, figure out v6 and Windows, that's, uh, I guess it's still useful. <laughs> It's been a decade now since this book since the book has come out. So, who knows if uh, it's 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 still got useful info in it, though. All right, we'll have all that in the show notes and more links to help you get the resources you need to learn about IPv6, including links to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, which Ed and Scott both co-host with Tom Coffin on the Packet Pushers Network. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, there are many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>